0: Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashton Mathias.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Lindsay Baines.
0: Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news to give you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. This week's show is a special edition of BTH, presented by the Young Diplomats of Canada, delegation to the World Trade Organization's 2021 public forum. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us at BYOND underscore headlines.
1: The World Trade Organization is an intergovernmental organization with 164 member states dealing with the rules of trade between nations. Headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland, the WTO's primary objective is to facilitate rules-based and predictable trade flows. It accomplishes this by settling trade disputes, acting as a forum for trade negotiations, and by building the trade capacity of developing economies.
0: The annual public forum is the WTO's largest annual outreach event giving a platform to thousands of NGOs, businesses, academia, the media, intergovernmental organizations, and civil society to discuss issues facing the multilateral trading system. Now, I'd like to briefly introduce you to the rest of our delegation, starting off with our head delegate, Angela. Thanks,
1: Ashton. My name is Angela, and I was the Head Delegate of the YDC Delegation to the 2021 WTO Public Forum. I am a Policy Analyst currently working in the Federal Service of Canada. I recently graduated
2: from a Master's in International Affairs program at the Graduate Institute of Geneva, during which I interned
1: at the WTO Successions Division. Thanks, Angela. Hi, my name is Gia, and I was the Communications Coordinator for the YDC Delegation to the WTO Public Forum 2021. I'm currently completing a dual degree in political science and business administration at Western University Ivy Business School while working part-time for the Government of Canada.
3: Hi, my name is Pierre Alexandre.
4: I recently completed a Master's degree in International Law at Université de Sherbrooke. Prior to that, I had the opportunity to intern at the Quebec office in Mexico, at the Canadian Embassy in China, as well as UN Women Mexico. I now work as a Trade Commissioner at Global Affairs Canada.
1: Thanks, Pierre. My name is Una, and I go by she, her, hers. I was a delegate for the YDC delegation to the WTO Public Forum 2021. I have recently completed my MSc in International Political Economy at the London School of Economics.
0: And of course, my name is Ashton. I recently finished my BA at McGill University in Montreal, and I'm now starting my Master's in International Affairs at the Nipsia School at Carleton University. I hope to specialize in trade relations in the Balkans region.
1: And my name is Lindsay. I'm completing the final year of an advanced Bachelor of Arts degree in Global Political Economy at the University of Manitoba while working part-time as a research assistant in organizational behavior and leadership studies. I'm applying for Master of Public Policy Programs for September 2022, and I'm passionate about all things policy, economics, and trade. We're excited to bring some insights to you today from the leading minds in international trade. As we learned, The trading system faces serious challenges to its ability to provide a stable, functioning framework for trade negotiations, dispute settlement, and rules-based trade. We had the opportunity to ask the leading minds in international trade about the issues facing the trading system today. The interview clips used in this podcast come from meetings with stakeholders and WTO public forum sessions. Allow us to begin by briefly defining multilateralism and multilateral trade, introducing our speakers, and jumping right into Q&A.
0: So what is multilateralism? Multilateralism and multilateral trade can be understood as trading agreements between three or more countries. Now, within the WTO, multilateralism in trade means consensus decision making and non-discrimination between all 164 WTO members. The multilateral trading system is an attempt by governments to make the business environment more stable and predictable. Without further ado, these are the speakers you will hear in today's podcast. Sarah Wilshaw is Chief Trade Commissioner at Global Affairs Canada. John Hannaford is Deputy Minister of International Trade at Global Affairs Canada. Ambassador Stephen DeBoer is Canada's Permanent Representative to the World Trade Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. Gabrielle Marceau works in the Economics Research and Statistics Division of the WTO. Diane Gray is the founding president and CEO of Centreport Canada Incorporated in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Radhika Desai is professor at the Department of Political Studies and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba. Olu is a trade lawyer, political economist, policy expert, and visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. His Excellency President Cyril Ramaphosa is the President of the Republic of South Africa, and was the keynote speaker for the opening plenary debate of the Public Forum. And finally, Dr. Ngozi okonjo Iwela is Director General of the WTO and was the moderator for the opening plenary debate. The first question we asked our guest was, what is Canada's role in the trading system? How can Canada contribute to a revitalized WTO and multilateral trading system? Here is Professor Gabriel Marceau's answer.
5: When I started some 25 years ago in 94, Canada was a member of the Quad, and the Quad was of course US, EU, Japan, Canada, and nothing could be really done without their blessing even fixing meetings, it was behind the curtains, but they had to be consulted. Then the Quad disappeared and Canada disappeared, different governments were there, less uh, interested, not absent, but not taking in initiatives. Up to and until three, three, four years ago when DeBoer arrived and he took back the lead with Canada having amazing practical proposal, one of which for instance, that dates back to, if I'm correct, December 1918, called Enhancing the Deliberative Functions of the WTO, and putting a focus on the need for WTO members to make better use of the Secretariat and involve the Secretariat in giving opinion, analysis, and documents. And this is quite a revolution in the WTO context that is always said to be member-driven. So Canada has this role. Of course, you have also now the new Ottawa Group that has put forward different health proposals. So in, in two words, Canada is really very much on the forefront of actions here. And it's one of the few members, I think there were eight or maybe 10, that in the context of covid made this amazing proposal a few, three, four months ago that the DG brings together producers, distributors, manufacturers of vaccines, try to explore new production facilities for in developing countries and mandated. Canada led the process where the head of the WTO was mandated to organize that and to report to members. And that's a revolution... Not only because the DG herself is mentioned in the proposal, but the proposal is to bring closer government and private sector.
0: We then asked the same question to Canada's Chief Trade Commissioner, Sarah Wilshaw, and she said.
2: Canada is really, really well seen in a number of spaces and we can play in those spaces. We can play an important role. And and we're looking for an economic growth that's inclusive and sustainable. So we set ourselves a goal of increasing Canadian exports by fifty percent by twenty twenty five to two hundred and ninety-two billion. And it's gotta be it's gotta be diverse.
0: Of course, Ambassador Stephen DeBoer, joining us virtually from Geneva, shared his reflections and he said
6: I think Canada's most important contribution is that we were there at the beginning and we understood that rules and international rules are The best way for us to govern ourselves and it's also the best for uh, the world at large. A rules-based regime, a rules-based international order is in Canada's best interest and it is in the interest of, of the entire international community. So Canada worked very hard to develop those rules and Canada is continuing to work to ensure uh, that those rules remain relevant and that everyone is
0: applying those rules. Ambassador DeBoer developed this answer further when discussing the most significant tangible advances of WTO during his tenure in Geneva. We
6: haven't been able to have a ministerial conference because of COVID. We've had the appellate body impasse. We've had some significant challenges, but there have been some significant advances as well. And I would also argue that the, the JSI discussions on e-commerce, on investment facilitation, on MISMEs, the Buenos Aires Declaration on Women's Economic Empowerment are all very, very useful tools for advancing the international economic discussions
0: within here in Geneva, but within the WTO as well. Here are the thoughts of Canada's Deputy Minister of International Trade, John Hannaford.
4: For us, it, it's almost trite to say, but I think it's important to remember how important trade rules are to a country like Canada. We are a very, very trade reliant country. A good chunk of our economy is based on stable and predictable exports and imports. And one thing was brought home over the course of the pandemic, it was the importance of our supply chains to our well being.
1: The importance of supply chains and fostering resilience through COVID-19 were topics echoed through many public forum sessions. We asked our guests how to foster resilience in trade and what resilient supply chains look like. Here's what Canada's Chief Trade Commissioner Sarah Wilshaw had to say.
2: We've got to be looking ahead to what's the economic recovery? What, what does that look like and, and how do we get through that? And that international collaboration that we've had through the pandemic, hopefully we're able to sort of continue and take advantage of that to continue to build on our international engagement. We we absolutely know interdepartmental coordination, strategic planning is going to be really, really critical. This world has been absolutely transformed by COVID-19 in so many ways. And organizations like the WTO have to be thinking about that. What does it mean that so many people have gone into e-commerce channels, right? What does it mean to securitize payments? What does all the near shoring trends, although those are talk to our chief economist about what she's seeing there and businesses will ultimately make their own decisions about what is in their economic interests for where their suppliers are located. But there are definite questions around supply chain that people have to be thinking about right? And supply chain risks. And, and I'll say this, supply chain risks as well from a climate change perspective as well, from a logistical perspective, from a, a reliability and security perspective, from a forced labor perspective, so many things to consider in all of that. And, and a lot of those things have come up in the last little while. So that's really important.
1: Diane Gray, the founding president and CEO of Centreport Canada, who is recognized by the Supply Chain Management Association as one of the 100 influential women in Canadian supply chain, shared these thoughts.
7: What do I see a resilient supply chain? So I think it's about diversification of both your suppliers as well as your clients and customers, because we've talked a lot about where your source products are coming from. But if you're only selling to one buyer, you are equally at risk of of having a catastrophic problem with your business. So manufacturers, I think, have done a better job at diversification of the buyer than they have at their supplier end for the most part. So I would say those are two elements. I, I think also where your, your products are coming from is important. I do believe with corporate social responsibility issues, and I continue to think this should and will be in a more important part and, and where I think young people are going to drive business even more to, to in, in this area is ensuring that your supply is coming from countries where it, the production has been handled ethically with fair wages, with concern for the environment. I, I think those are all important considerations. And I truly believe that those are things that the under 40s are really driving right now. And, and your generation is going to continue to do so. And it's going to become an important part of the supply chain going forward where it, where it hasn't already become. Like I, There is definitely a shift in the marketplace, particularly with consumer goods but i think it's it's going to be happening more and more
1: here is an alternative perspective of supply chain resilience from professor of political studies and director of the geopolitical economy research group at the university of manitoba dr radhika desai
8: so 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 resilience means so if you're going to have more resilient supply chains it means the following it means you have you either domesticate production and it's possible, but you can only domesticate production, either by driving down wages to third world levels. And if that proves not possible, then you have to essentially be willing to pay more for what you need. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, because especially given how the extent to which, especially at the height of the neoliberal economy, when things were still going good in the late 90s, I would say was the height of the neoliberal economy. Basically, everybody was encouraged to consume way more than you could possibly. Like, you don't need beyond a point. Even consumption takes time that we don't have. That's why so many well-to-do homes have garages full of things that have never been used and will never be used. So, one has to say, okay, I'm. We need to have a more, a better sense of how we need to live, and so on. And we need to have less, less consumerism, less satisfaction of false needs, more public consumption than private consumption. So, for instance, fewer cars and more buses and and trains and and trams and so on. So those are some of the choices we're going to have to make. So, But resilience means that you have more control. Next, we asked the experts about one of our delegation's priorities,
1: trade and climate change, energy and environment. This is a key policy area gaining increasing traction across all levels of government decision making, in different markets and countries, and in the world of multilateral trade. Trade issues are increasingly intersecting and linking with issues ranging from sustainability to security. Here are Ambassador Stephen DeBoer's thoughts.
6: The, the trade file is becoming increasingly more diverse. We used to call it the trade and agenda, but, but now this, this idea of interdependency isn't just between members of the WTO It's the interdependency and the linkages between economic issues and other issues. And so this this notion of linking trade to sustainable development, we see that in the fishery subsidies negotiations. We see it in the current discussions around carbon border adjustment and in the broader context of how we address climate change. We see it in the context of plastics pollution. All of these are trade issues, and we didn't traditionally think of them As trade issues, but they are. And Canada has a lot of expertise and a lot of interest in advancing those discussions that do two things. One, do not harm us economically and actually benefit us economically. And two, actually meet the goals that we're trying to reach, such as addressing climate change, such as reducing plastics pollution, such as ensuring uh, sustainable fisheries for all. So there's there's a lot more work to be done, and Canada, I think, is in a good place to to show leadership in those areas.
1: When asked about the future of trade, Canada's Deputy Minister of International Trade, John Hannaford, highlighted climate change as a priority as well.
4: I, I think that the issues around climate and trade are ones that sort of bring together some very big themes that we want to make sure are reinforcing. the way that we collectively address climate change is obviously of primordial importance for all countries around the world and for everyone on Earth. So how that works with the trading regimes is extraordinarily important. And this is not a new conversation. This is something that we've been talking about for years, but it's taken on a particular focus right now, just given the nature of the crisis that we're facing in terms of climate and the way that some of the policies that we are all thinking about have evolved over the course of time. And so you think about border adjustments with respect to carbon, those are areas where you have a very direct intersection between the price of carbon and the way that we, we deal with the flows of international trade. And so that's something where it's really important that we have a forum to talk about that and a sort of mutual understanding as to how we will develop the, the policies that we're going to need to develop in order to address the the, the challenge that we face, which is enormous, and so I think if I were to identify one thing that is really extraordinarily important, sort of globally, that would be it. But the more I don't know, there's more of a meta answer, but the, the,
3: there's a broad answer that
4: we just need to be engaged and continue to be engaged on the rules themselves to make sure that the rules continue to be potent and vigorous and relevant and meaningful as a way of ensuring that we continue to have the kind of open societies that we want to have and the prosperous societies that we
0: want to have. Discussions around sustainable development also include the dimension of making international trade more inclusive, fair, and beneficial to all. This resonates with our delegation's emphasis on equity and diversity in international trade. As Director General Dr. Ngozi okonjo Iwela said at the opening of the public forum,
5: we must engage in serious thinking about what it would take to build back a better world economy. A world economy that is greener, more prosperous, and more inclusive. A world economy that is more responsive to problems of the global commons. A WTO that is more responsive to the changing economic realities and the evolving needs of the people we serve. That is what this week is all about.
0: Director General Okonja Iwela's sentiments were echoed by the President of South Africa, His Excellency Cyril Ramaphosa.
9: This is not the time just to be unidimensionally focused on just profit. This is the time to save lives. The aspirations of the Marrakesh Agreement should be at the center of our actions towards a post-COVID-19 economic recovery. We need to recognize that trade is not an end in itself, but it is a means of raising standards of living, creating employment, as well as improving people's lives. This means that we must ensure that developing economies, and especially the least developed among them, secure a share in the growth in international trade that is commensurate with the needs of their economic development. Now, more than ever before, we need a multilateral trading system that promotes inclusive economic growth and development with the World Trade Organization at its core and leading the process.
0: Dr. Olu Fazan from the London School of Economics further elaborated on the importance of fostering resilience and inclusion through trade and development.
3: So what might resilience mean? The fostering resilience will mean for me will be how do we integrate developing countries into the world economy so that they can trade themselves out of poverty? Is it ever possible because that if they're able to trade themselves out of poverty and have the resources, the financial resources, to deal with those kind of shocks. That is one area of resilience. And that will mean, the question we should then be asking ourselves is what are the barriers to developing countries or smaller countries not able to trade Is in the area of agriculture, for instance? What are the barriers? So we need to be looking at whether we need to remove barriers that are, are barriers to the ability and to the capacity of developing countries to be able to trade themselves out of poverty. Because what was what was clear from COVID-19 was poor countries, because of their poverty level, could not cope with the shock, whereas richer countries could cope. They could cope by even buying all the vaccines in the world, whereas the developed countries the country, couldn't even manage to buy it. So. Building back better is one of those addressing those inequalities. And my way of addressing it is through trade. Increasing the capacity, the ability of countries, those countries, to be able to trade their products in the, in the world and, and therefore increase their capacity.
1: Technology and the digitalization of trade are becoming increasingly important in supporting inclusive development within the modern trading system. Centreport Canada's Diane Gray highlighted the importance of connectivity and technological development in supporting an inclusive recovery.
7: Member states should adopt a principle of wanting to ensure that no developing economy essentially gets left behind in COVID recovery and the new digitization e commerce world. So, I'd, I'm not an expert in what kind of supports that is going to look like going forward, but There obviously needs to, at a minimum, be a a look at what type of technology those countries have and their ability to continue to play a role in the world's economy. Otherwise, some of their micro businesses, in particular, that were helping to support rural developing economies, are going to be completely. It literally off the grid, they're 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 not going to be effectively able to play a role going forward. And the last thing I think we would want to see is is even further inequality between the developed world and the developing world. So so I think that has to be the overriding principle.
1: Deputy Minister John Hannaford also noted that the accelerated digitization of the economy was an important and unique element of the COVID nineteen pandemic.
4: The digitization of the economy has been, I think, accelerated by 10 to 15 years by the pandemic. And that's that's a very broad social phenomenon. And that's got to do with a whole bunch of things. The fact that we are all working remotely, the fact that we're having this conference where we're all sitting, in my instance, I'm borrowing somebody's office, but I suspect a lot of you are sitting in, in bedrooms or dining rooms or basements, and that kind of creation and deployment of these platforms has been critical to us being able to do our work. But there's also, at least for me, the job that I sit or where I sit, there is the issue around how we develop rules then that best address the commercial realities of an online world. The way that commerce has actually unfolded over the course of the pandemic has totally accelerated the need for companies to think about their online presence, how they, they work through the logistics and the the kind of infrastructure of e-commerce and, and digital transactions. And I think there is a particular bias then to use in that, because I think that there, an appreciation of the potential of those platforms is extraordinarily important as we think about how the rules should be shaped and how we can try and to the extent possible, anticipate what, how our interests could best be defended internationally through that kind of evolution.
0: Turning to our national perspective, Canada has been a long-standing supporter of more inclusive trade policies. We also recognize that further progress must be made to further support marginalized communities, developing economies, and all those who currently do not equally reap the benefits of trade. Here's Canada's Chief Trade Commissioner Sarah Wilshaw,
2: and I think it's one. It's an area again where where the WTO can certainly play a role. And and I know these conversations are taking place all across Canada. They're taking place around the world. People want we want more women participating. We want more Indigenous peoples participating. Visible minorities, young people, LGBTQ two plus everyone. We want everyone to have access. So. Sometimes we don't know what the barriers are until until we really look at them. Access to the internet is a barrier. I think that trade commissioner services are are super easy to access, but they aren't for everybody. And so, how do we make that even easier? I think it's just an email, right? Send send Pierre Exond an email. He's going to write back to you. He'll help you. No problem. That's exa- that's access. That's open to everybody. But it's, it's maybe not, and I don't know what I don't know about the challenges people face in accessing our services or app accessing global markets. So we really need to examine what that means and do a better job of ensuring that we are taking down those barriers. And the great thing about this virtual space is that it does help.
1: To conclude our reflections, we asked our experts to describe what a post-COVID recovery would look like in international trade. Ambassador DeBoer called attention to COVID-19 responses and the need for multilateral cooperation in an interdependent world.
6: The other thing is the response to, to the pandemic. It hasn't been perfect, but there has been a recognition of the interdependency of the membership, with each other, to trade with each other, and I think that has been enormously helpful for the WTO. And the third thing I would say that I find to be very exciting, and it's more than than just a symbol, but we now have the first African and the first woman leading the WTO, and that's enormously positive for the system and for the
1: international community. Chief Trade Commissioner Sarah Wilshaw built on this by emphasizing the importance of an equitable recovery.
2: The U.S. So stimulus package there, massive. It was historic in its size and uh, very loose monetary policy. And, and that has has been good for us, too. When we go to look at, and this is kind of coming back to some of the challenges going forward, uneven global recovery, as I say, increased inequality. Places that have been badly impacted continue to be badly impacted. So this has been a pretty crazy, unprecedented period of being grounded. But those services, a lot of them are coming back. Those that were able to shift into a digital space have done pretty well through this time. And actually, some of our exports haven't contracted as much as we thought. On the upside, lots of consumer and business confidence. It's actually pretty amazing where people are, and a fair bit of cash. People are sitting on savings. So there's lots of folks thinking about how you can encourage people to get out there and bend again, especially as the government starts to reduce some of the supports. So watch for those things, because we're about to enter a very tricky period where government supports, and not just in Canada, but around the world, government supports that have been there through the pandemic will start to ease off. And the hope is that those people who have been employed or who might be re-employed again, start to come back into the system of spending. So we'll see, but it's a, there's a lot of uncertainty in there. And of course, we have to recognize that we're in part of the world where we've had vaccines, lots of them, but not all the world has. In fact, a lot of the world has not. And so there will continue to be outbreaks and waves and that confidence could be weak for a a little while longer particularly if there's more containment
4: measures
1: lastly the deputy minister of international trade john Hanford, provided an optimistic outlook for the future
4: we were fortunate that things held together as well as they did that we did not see the major disruptions that we might have and that was at least in significant part due to the resilience of the rules that we have collectively created in order to make predictable our our trading relationships. And we did see around the world some attraction to uh, protectionist policies and some, some concerns with respect to how international trade would affect domestic supply. But Canada and a number of other parties really put an emphasis on maintaining to the greatest extent possible openness. And I think we saw the benefits of that as a, uh, as a policy direction in order to kind of make sure that we continued to have the markets that we relied on for our well-being, but also we continued to have the supplies that we relied upon in order to protect ourselves and to feed ourselves. So that really, I think, it, it, as a sort of microcosm, reinforced some of the priorities that we have with respect to rules-based trade and, and a rules-based international order. Part of what's going on right now multilaterally has to do with forces that are much bigger than simply around trade policy. There are major geopolitical competitions that are playing themselves out right now, which then become manifest in a number of different settings, including the WTO. So the competition between the United States and China is, is something that was obviously of extraordinary importance both to China and the United States, but also because of the scale, those are the two largest economies in the world. And so that, the, the way that they interact will be of relevance in a whole bunch of different settings. And the WTO being the primary kind of mechanism to deal with the global aspects of trade, it, it, that is obviously just an aspect of the environment in which we're operating. You know, the WTO was an extraordinary accomplishment and a very ambitious accomplishment. And it, looking back on it, it's kind of amazing that our predecessors were able to come to close on the range of issues that they did and the institutions that they created. And it's hard to sustain that. And I think what we're seeing in some ways is just that inherent difficulty in sustaining what is a very ambitious set of undertakings. And that's, that's I don't know whether you call that natural because there's no inherent nature, I don't think, to these kinds of organizations, but I think it's not surprising that given the diversity of views around the world, given the way the world has evolved, that something that is as ambitious and as comprehensive as the WTO would come under some strain over the course of time. And I think we're seeing the the effects of that right now. And what Canada can do in the face of that is multifaceted. One, One thing we can do is continue to know what's important to us, to identify what our interests are, and then to think about from that strategic point of view, how we tactically advance those interests. And like the Ottawa group is actually a one means by which we can try and have influence on the overall well-being of, of the WTO by creating a forum where there is a live conversation around WTO reform, where there is a constructive engagement, where we can try and think to the extent possible, creatively about how we deal with the problems that we are seeing. And I, I think it has been quite successful in that regard. But a lot of the work that we did on new topics, like intellectual property, or on things that had not yet been addressed in the multilateral forum to, to a great extent, like environment or, or labor, we were able to create a new set of rules that then became kind of examples that could be drawn off of in the broader negotiations. And that that's a, a rule that we can play by virtue of the kind of position that we're in and the, the processes that we're engaged in. And maybe the extension of that is that the people that we have who are doing trade policy are now amongst the most experienced negotiators in the world. And that's just a fact. And so that experience is also relevant as we think about the next steps in multilateral fora and because we just have people who know what they're talking about. And that that you can do a lot of analyses as to why negotiations come out as they do and political theorists and international relations theorists will give you a bunch of reasons why these things happen, but you can't underestimate the power of just knowing what you're talking about. And that that having experienced negotiators who can engage in detail on the issues that we're trying to confront and who can think laterally then about how we can address new issues, that's very powerful. So those are all things that we, we can do and we are doing in order
0: to try and have a positive influence on the WTO. You have been listening to a special edition of Beyond the Headlines, presented to you by the WTO Public Forum 2021 Delegation of the Young Diplomats of Canada. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, or Young Diplomats of Canada. Be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www beyondtheheadlines.net or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.